This month, people around the world gather to celebrate queer love and queer joy. It's my favorite month of the year and Pride is my favorite weekend of the year. And I've said it so many times, joy is resistance, especially queer joy and especially now with the LGBTQ community coming under such renewed attack. But we absolutely cannot forget that Pride didn't start that way. It actually started as a series of acts of civil disobedience, of riots, of protests, of sit-ins, sip-ins. And these acts combined created the fever pitch that enabled the Stonewall riots to take place that one June night in 1969. Stonewall is the reason Pride is celebrated in June, but the actual history of how Pride even started is one that absolutely should never get buried underneath all the corporatization and commodification of Pride Month. It's a story of a bunch of separate groups of queer people fighting back as cops and restaurants and bars and the state tried to eliminate or erase or harm them. It's a story of how cops raided their bars one too many times. Now more than ever, we need this revolutionary spirit more than we need rainbow merch. Although the rainbow merch is pretty fucking fun. I'll say that. <laughs> I'm Sarah. I vow to embody the revolutionary spirit of our queer ancestors during pride. This is reclaiming and girls to the fucking front. Happy June. Happy Monday. How you doing? I am so glad to be back. I took a week off. Uh, it was Memorial Day. Eric and I were out of town and I just missed you all so much. So I'm so happy to be back. Welcome to another episode of Reclaiming the Weekly Podcast, where we spark a revolution from within. <laughs> My name is Sarah. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a writer, artist, witch, and pole dancer in Los Angeles. And I'm really fucking stoked you're here with me today, my love. Today, I'm going to be talking about the kind of revolution that happens on the outside. We usually talk about the inside, right? But this time we're talking about the outside kind of revolution, the kind that galvanizes people to say, finally say fucking enough. I'm so excited to talk about this history because it's so damn important, not just Stonewall, but the history of pride. And it's so deeply rooted in riots and civil disobedience. And almost all of it is borrowed from the black civil rights leaders of the 1960s. And these are all lessons we have a lot to learn from. But before we dig into the topic, a little housekeeping as always. If you are new here, welcome. I am so happy you're here. So, so happy. You have no idea. It means so much to me. If you are not subscribed to Reclaiming the Newsletter, please go do that. You can subscribe online at reclaimeffingeverything.com. That's reclaim, E-F-F-I-N-G, everything.com. Um, the newsletter and the podcast really go hand in hand. It's kind of all part of the same thing. Uh, both of them hit your inbox on Monday mornings and you can start your week with a little dose of resistance. I did that on purpose. <laughs> and if you're a veteran reclaimer, hello, my love. I love you so much. Thank you for coming back this week. And I'm so glad to have you. You mean so much to me. Your love and support also means so much to me. I am one lucky girl to have you all in my life and I just adore you so, so much. I say this every week, but please, if you could go to Spotify or Apple or wherever you're listening, give this podcast a five-star rating and review. That would really help me out. I'm literally at the whim of like 20 different algorithms and yeah, the, the ratings and reviews really boost it up. I know that sounds trite and indulgent and a little cringy, but whatever. I'm not afraid of being cringe. <laughs> so let's talk about pride. 
Okay, so Pride really started as a riot, not just the Stonewall riot, but we'll definitely start with Stonewall because it's the most well-known event in queer history. And you may already know this history. You may already know about Stonewall. You may already know the name of Marsha P. Johnson. You may know that Pride is an exaltation and it's celebration of queer joy. Yes, all of these things. And, 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 and. The only reason we have pride is because of the multiple groups of revolutionaries in the 1960s, both within the queer community and the black civil rights community, which often overlapped. These people staged acts of civil disobedience and stood up to the cops and establishments. And I'm going to go into a little deep dive about Stonewall. Yes, but I'm also going to cover some of the movements and events that led up to it because Stonewall was absolutely not an isolated event. Now, my goal here is to show you that while we celebrate queer joy this month and always, we also need to remember how we got here and that it's by a handful of groups that said enough. We aren't going to fucking take this anymore. And that, my dear sweet listener, is the attitude I want you to go into with for all of your pride events this year, because I'm sure, as you know, the queer community remains under attack and all of us, every single person here listening to this podcast, whether you're queer or an ally or whatever, we need to let them know we are not going to fucking take it anymore. Okay, so all of this history takes place in the 1960s, which tracks, right? It's the same time as the women's liberation movement, the anti-war movement, the Black Panther movement. The Stonewall riots took place in New York City, but there are plenty of other instances of direct action in the queer community in the 60s all over the country. And we'll get to those in a little bit. Although queer activists were building a movement against police violence and state repression and capitalist exploitation long before Stonewall in 1969, let's talk about Stonewall, which is widely referred to as a turning point in the LGBTQ rights movement. In 1969, the Stonewall Inn was a gay bar on Christopher Street, which was a historic queer neighborhood in New York City. Now, if you are not queer, it's important to note that gay bars are very often the safest places for queer folks to be. After the Club Q massacre in Colorado Springs last year in November, Dan Savage tweeted this about gay bars, which I think is a absolutely impeccable description of what they are and what they mean to the queer community. And he says this, people who hate queer people want us to keep it private behind closed doors, someplace they don't have to see it. And the doors of a gay bar are doors we keep it behind, a place we can go and be together and not bother them with the fact of our existence. And behind those doors is a place that we can forget all the haters exist just for a few hours. In the 1950s and 60s, gay bars like Stonewall were also constant targets of abuse by police raids and shakedowns. Cops often masked their raids as targeting prostitution and organized crime because gay bars were often owned by the mafia. So the cops could raid it, quote unquote, raid it under this guise. But we all know that's bullshit. And they did, too, because once they were inside, it was clear that they were targeting the patrons and not the bar owners. Police targeted people who were not conforming to gender and sexuality norms. They would even do shit like arresting patrons for the crime of wearing fewer than three articles of clothing that matched their sex, whatever, quote, match their sex even means. But back to Stonewall, shortly after midnight on June 28th, 1969, officers with a now defunct public morals squad <laughs> raided the Stonewall Inn, saying they had arrived to disperse the bar's patrons because the bar had violated 
violated liquor laws. There were eight officers and an inspector that arrived that night and ordered they ordered 200 people to line up and show their identification. Some of these people, some of the patrons at the bar were even asked to submit to get this anatomical inspections. This is sexual assault. As officers conducted the raid on Stonewall, there was a crowd that swelled outside of the bar and cops were hauling customers and staff out in handcuffs. Now, exact accounts of the evening vary, but many witnesses remember a lesbian Stonewall patron being roughed up and beaten with a baton. She turned to the crowd of onlookers outside of the bar and shouted something to the effect of, why don't you guys do something? The crowd outside began shouting gay power. And as is generally the case with a riot, there's a lot of chaos. No one knows who, quote, threw the first brick. And there are a lot of OGs who are there that actually say there were no bricks at all. But the crowd began taunting the cops. Some threw bottles and stones. Some shoved back and punched the officers. And some say that they threw bricks, although, like I said, many who were actually there have refuted that. The ensuing clash lasted for about an hour, but it ignited a violent conflict and street protests that lasted for days after. It resulted in arrests, injuries, and tons of property damage, Stonewall patrons who were fed up with longstanding harassment at the hands of law enforcement had finally had enough and they finally pushed back. The patrons were determined to turn what the police thought would be just another routine raid into a full scale riot. The two main figures that emerged during the Stonewall riots and are pretty well known today for their roles are Marsha P. Johnson. The P stands for pay it no mine, which was a phrase that became her motto and Sylvia Rivera. Marsha and Sylvia were trans women, instantly friends from their youth and are considered to some as modern day queer heroes, especially Marsha P. Johnson, who is known for her colorful, fun outfits that she made from finds at thrift stores and discarded items. She was also often seen wearing a crown of flowers. Marsha and Sylvia uh, arrived at Stonewall around 2 a.m. where Marsha said in a later interview, the place was already on fire. There was a raid already and the riots had already started. There are many competing stories about what Sylvia and Marsha did during the raid on Stonewall, but it's clear that they were both on the front lines. Marsha, like many other transgender women, felt she had nothing to lose. These folks were not only angered by police, the police raid, but also the oppression they feared and experienced every single day. In a later interview, Sylvia said, I didn't even know what a Molotov cocktail was. I'm holding this thing that's lit. And I'm like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? And someone said, throw up before it blows. And I said, OK, <laughs> I think that's so cute. The riots lasted several more nights until July 3rd, which marked a historic new beginning for the LGBTQ rights movement. That night after the raid, the Gay Liberation Front, or the GLF, formed and members spoke on the steps of Stonewall. Throughout the next year, GLF made it their mission to continue the resistance that had boiled up during the riots and to mobilize the city's queer community and allies. During the year after Stonewall, GLF handed out leaflets announcing they were gay. One of them even said, are we a load of screaming queens? Yes. <laughs> The group shared information about medical and legal developments affecting the community. They welcomed anyone who wanted to join the movement. They did all of this unabashedly in public, which was so rare for the time when most gatherings took place in private. That year, they also organized the first gay pride march called the Christopher Street Liberation Day, which took place exactly a year after the uprising. 
Thousands participated heading straight up 6th Avenue to Sheep Meadow and Central Park for a gay end. Because it took place in June, Pride Month spans the month of June as well. This is where our modern pride comes from, but it is not the sole thing that launched this movement of queer joy and resistance. More on that later. Stonewall, perhaps, though, is the most famous event in queer history because of its role as the commemorative event that launched the first Pride Parade, but also because it united so many fractured groups into one mobilized entity. As a communal revolution, Gay Liberation Front was then so much more powerful and so critical in pushing for the rights of the community. Mark Siegel, an activist who was there the night of Stonewall, says this about GLF. What people have to realize is how fractured of a community we were before Stonewall and then how we unite. Right after Stonewall, we all got together and created Gay Liberation Front, all of us, from all these elements of our community who didn't even like each other. That's called unity. And that's the way we created that first magical year was to work together. Some of the magical things we did for the first time is you told me what your sexual identity was and it was accepted. You were a he, you were a her. You were, we didn't use words like trans in those days, but you were a drag queen. Whatever your identity was, you were accepted. Gay Liberation Front was the first organization that accepted self-identity and was also inclusive. We had men, women, people who today would be non-binary, people who were trans, black, white, Latino, there was everybody. I love that quote. Stonewall was a galvanizing moment to unify this powerful group and cause this revolution. And it was a riot, my love. That is what I never, ever want us to forget. The rights that queer folks have now, which let's be honest, are disappearing in front of our eyes, were because of this fed up group of people that had enough and fought back. They reclaimed their power, reclaimed their bars and their safe spaces, reclaimed their streets, which they had just as much of a right to be on as straight people and cops. They reclaimed their inheritance inherent right not to be abused by officers or the state. Today, Stonewall is a beacon of hope, a reminder to queer people everywhere to be strong and stand up for themselves every single day. Okay, so let's put a pin in Stonewall uh, for just for a second, because you'll see it was simply the breaking point. There's so many other moments of pain and frustration and fuck this. We've had enough in the queer community. And you'll see that a lot of these prior uprisings and protests and acts of civil disobedience were directly copied from the black male civil rights leaders of the time. Not all of them were violent riots, but all of them were acts of civil disobedience. And this is a vibe that I think we need to start thinking about and doing again in mass in my opinion. Not necessarily violence, let me be clear, but fighting the fuck back. Civil disobedience, showing these assholes that we are not going to fucking take their abuse anymore. Okay, so let's go one whole decade before Stonewall. In 1959, there was a riot at Cooper Donuts here in Los Angeles. This was a 24-hour donut cafe, and it became the site of a large riot one morning in May 1959. As novelist and one of the hustlers, John Retchie, who was there that night, said in his book, City of Night, two cops ostensibly checking ID, a routine harassment, arbitrarily picked up two hustlers, two queens, and a young man just cruising and let them out. The situation quickly devolved as angry bystanders threw debris and items from Coopers at the cops who eventually retreated into their car. It turned into a riot and police backup arrived and many of the rioters were arrested. On August 5th, 1961, four sailors were out in Milwaukee partying on the streets. They entered Black Knight 
a popular gay bar on a dare. They started a fight with a bouncer only to be chased out of the bar by black queen Josie Carter, who knocked one of the men unconscious with a bottle. Fuck yeah, queen. Like true bullshit toxic masculinity would have them do. The four sailors came back with reinforcements and began to tear the bar apart, but they were met with stiff resistance by bar patrons and the sailors were arrested, but charges were later dropped due to, quote, lack of evidence. On April 25th, 1965, Dewey's restaurant in Philadelphia denied service to about 150 people who they thought appeared to be gay or gender nonconforming. Three teenagers refused to leave, though, and they were later arrested, along with Clark Pollack, who is who was the leader of the, quote, homophile, which was a word they used back then to describe pro LGBTQ rights organization, the Janus Society. The Janus Society members protested outside of the restaurant for the next five days. And on May 2nd, three more people staged a second sit-in at Dewey's. This time, the protesters weren't arrested and instead left the restaurant voluntarily a few hours later. Dewey's agreed to stop denying service to queer people. The sit-in at Dewey's is among the long list of examples that show a direct line to the black male civil rights movement. Specifically, sit-ins organized by gay activists in the 60s appear to be directly inspired by the protests held in the 1960s by black college students at Woolworth's lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina against racial segregation. Then in the spring of 1966, members of the Mattachin Society staged a sip-in, a twist on a sit-in protest in which they visited taverns, declared themselves gay, and waited to be turned away so they could sue. Also, it should be noted at the time, queer folks weren't allowed to be served alcohol in public because liquor laws considered their gatherings to be, quote, disorderly. The sipping group was finally denied service at a Greenwich Village ta tavern called Julius, which had been raided by police a few days earlier for serving gay people. The sipping actually led to the quick reversal of the state's anti-gay liquor laws. And then there's Compton's Cafeteria, a 24-hour restaurant and refuge for sex-working trans women in San Francisco's Tenderloin neighborhood. As is still the case today, trans women sex workers in the 1960s faced intense violence from clients and police. One day in 1966, an officer placed his hand on a trans woman at Compton's and she responded by throwing her cup of coffee in his face. A riot followed and Compton's patrons threw cups, saucers and other diner items at the police who retreated until reinforcements arrived. Then dozens of trans people, drag queens and gay men fought the police, broke windows, destroyed a police car and set a newsstand on fire. Drag queens hit police with heavy purses. In the end, however, of course, the police arrested the women. This Compton's cafeteria riot was also likely influenced by the events of the 1965 Watts Rebellion in Los Angeles, where six days of riots erupted between police and the predominantly black male community. Again, back down in Los Angeles at the Black Cat Tavern in Silver Lake on New Year's Eve 1967, undercover cops tore apart couples celebrating at midnight and began beating them. The brutality eventually spread to a neighboring bar where police attacked the bar's owner and two bartenders. By the end of the night, 14 people were arrested and two of the men were later forced to register as sex offenders for kissing. A few weeks later, on February 11th, 1967, over 200 demonstrators formed a picket line outside of the Black Cat Tavern to, to peacefully protest against police abuse. Though many police were dispatched to the protest, it remained charged, but peaceful. And then there was The Patch, a gay bar in Wilmington in Los Angeles owned and managed by Lee Glaze. Glaze had a secret signal. He'd play God Save the Queen on the jukebox to announce that cops were entering the bar, which would give the patrons time to comply with the discriminatory laws. 
was. On August 17, 1968, undercover cops left the bar but returned with several uniformed officers and backup, although it's unclear what prompted it. They fanned out and began to screen the crowd looking for IDs that didn't, quote, match the holder's outward appearance. In the end, police arrested two bar patrons for lewd conduct and raging glaze who knew the men were innocent. He led a crowd to buy massive quantities of flowers from a nearby shop owned by one of the bar's customers. The crowd then went to the police station and camped in the waiting room, remaining until bail was posted for the arrested men. As you can see, Stonewall was the breaking point, an important one, of course, critical to be sure, but it was direct response to so many other uprisings, both violent and peaceful, and so much groundwork that had been laid before it. Let's just take a quick second, too, to acknowledge that while riots and revolutions like this are absolutely critical to progress, they are nothing without the backing of solid work within the legal system as well. We often think of history as, you know, these testosterone-fueled events like battles and riots being the source of change. Violent outbreaks, though, they're dramatic, and the pain that comes in their wake is attention-grabbing. But real, real solid change generally doesn't come about in a moment. It happens over time, and it's sustained by people who hold on to an idea and push it forward. These acts of civil disobedience throughout the 1960s worked in tandem with the legal strategies that used the same arguments developed by civil rights lawyers before them. This is what led to every right that has been afforded to queer folks, including pride as a month-long celebration of queer joy. I use the word right here um, in an inherent way, not in a, quote, we have this or that right as defined by the law, quote, just to be clear. But it's absolutely critical to mention that in order to gain rights and affect change during the 1960s and the decades that followed, the queer community used the legal strategy set forth by black male civil rights leaders, which challenged racial segregation. These strategies were pioneered by the NAACP in the 1940s and were really the wellspring from which the LGBTQ equality movement grew. In the 1940s and 50s, NAACP leader Thurgood Marshall argued a number of cases related to segregation, such as Brown v. Board of Education, in front of the Supreme Court, which ruled that U.S. state laws segregating schools were unconstitutional. Marshall's legal strategy, which involved using due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment, served as a model that the LGBTQ rights movement used to challenge the criminalization of homosexuality and the denial of same-sex marriage rights. Activists today know that we are all indebted to the civil rights leaders of the past because they were instrumental in outlining the guarantee of equal protection for everyone under the law. In closing, there really is no universal queer history in which any one single event is primary. Yes, Stonewall galvanized a community and is the reason we celebrate Pride in June. Yes, it's probably the most well-known event in U.S. queer history, but there are so, so, so many more. And the main thing they have in common is the risk that these brave folks took in being themselves in public and pushing back against the police and establishments for abusing, harassing, and erasing them. I've said so many times, celebration and joy are resistance, especially for queer folks. Because the people at the top right now, the Republican Party, don't want queer folks living proudly and happily. We absolutely need to celebrate queer folks this and every month. But let's also take this moment to realize there are some very serious threats that queer folks are facing today, especially in states like Florida. Marsha P. Johnson famously said, as long as gay people don't have their rights all across America, there's no reason for celebration. We need to make sure that we embody not just the queer joy present in pride, but also the spirit of how pride began, resisting, fighting back and demanding that queer folks do not become erased again. Out of the bars and into the streets was a chant heard during the Stonewall riots. I quoted Dan Savage earlier, but I wanted to continue his quote, the one that he made after the massacre at Club Q. He said this, 
The raid on the Stonewall Inn was state-sponsored violence. They used to say that there was something wrong with us because we only gathered in seedy bars. But that was where they herded us. That was the only space we were allowed. And when they attacked us in a gay bar one time too many, we poured out not just of that bar, but out of all of them into the streets. In 2016, Barack Obama designated the Stonewall Inn as a historic landmark, turning Christopher Street Park into the first national park site dedicated to LGBTQ history in America. As inflammatory rhetoric and even violence against queer people accelerate, the Stonewall National Monument in New York remains a powerful symbol of the community's resilience and permanence. In 2019, as people around the world began to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots, New York's police commissioner actually took a step towards making amends. He issued an unusual official apology on behalf of the police department for the actions taken of the officers during the Stonewall uprising. The commissioner, James P. O'Neill, said this. The actions taken by the NYPD were wrong, plain and simple. I think it would be irresponsible to go through Pride Month and not to speak of the events at the Stonewall Inn in June of 1969. I do know that what happened should not have happened. The actions and the laws were discriminatory and oppressive. And for that, I apologize. That's it for this week, my loves. Thank you so much for listening. If you have not subscribed to the newsletter, please do so at reclaimeffingeverything.com. That's reclaimeffingeverything.com. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review. And remember, this month, we celebrate the fuck out of being alive and loving each other. We shout it from the motherfucking rooftops. We hug, we kiss, we dance, we laugh, we get down, we party, we love, but we never, ever stop fighting. And we remember and embody the early spirit of pride the one that says, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me to anyone who tries to erase our existence. Until next week, my love, I love you so much. And girl, fucking power. Power.